Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. It can be easy to think of colonies as having two populations, colonial subjects and colonial overlords, probably from Europe. It's an easy narrative. One has power, status, and privilege. The other does not. But in practice, European colonies created many populations in between, groups who may have benefited from imperial prestige, yet still not one of the elite. Britain's almost two and a half centuries long presence in India created its own local Eurasian community, the Anglo-Indians, descendants of marriages between English or other Europeans and local Indians. They're the subject of a recent book from Uther Charlton Stevens, himself of Anglo-Indian descent, titled Anglo-India and the End of Empire, published by Hearst earlier this year. Uther is a fellow of the Royal Asiatic Society and the author of Anglo-Indians and Minority Politics in South Asia. He earned his doctorate in history from the University of Oxford. He spent his early childhood in colonial Hong Kong. Born in Ferozpur, his Anglo-Indian father grew up in Bangalore before migrating to England. Today, Uther and I talk about the Anglo-Indian community, beneficiaries of, yet also ignored, by the British Empire, and this community's efforts to find a place for themselves in either the UK or an independent India. So, Luther, thanks for coming on the show today. Perhaps it's best to start with, you know, who exactly were the Anglo-Indians? What made them different from either the British in India or the local Indian community? Thank you so much for having me, Nicholas. So, Anglo-Indians, as they were known from 1911 onwards, were a long-standing mixed-race community who originated from the earliest European presence in India, including the Portuguese, and then subsequently the Dutch, the French, the English, and others. And their position changed over time because early in the East India Company period, in the 1680s, the East India Company actually encouraged marriages with local women and not just Indian women, but Indo-Portuguese and Indo-French women. And they were very concerned primarily not about race and color at that point, but about ensuring that the children of these unions would be raised as Protestants and not as Catholics. So the attitude to children of mixed race and then an intergenerational community of mixed European and Indian descent changed over time as racial attitudes emerged and developed through the 19th century. In terms of comparing them with other Indian communities, they had a relatively privileged position with special jobs that were earmarked for them or later reserved for them formally on the railways, in the telegraphs, in the customs department, areas that were seen as strategic by the British that underpinned the security of British rule in India, which we know as the Raj. And so they believed that the Anglo-Indians were going to be loyal to the British because they spoke English and they were culturally orientated towards Europe and towards Britain, and they were predominantly or almost exclusively Christian. So I think many of this community at least gets its start from, you know, mixed-race relationships, mixed-race marriages between say, English soldiers and sailors who were there from the from the company, um, and I guess 
actual soldiers later, uh, and local Indian women. Um, you know, at the time, how were these marriages seen, both by, I guess, the colonial government and by local Indian communities? So, as I've mentioned, they actually, these marriages were sometimes with already mixed race women who were Indo-French or Indo-Portuguese. And so the attitudes also changed over time. In the early period, the English and the British were concerned with religion more than they were with color and class. And this was the world of the late Mughal Empire. And the Indian attitudes would depend also on religious affiliation. So generally speaking, the Mughals and Muslims were more tolerant of intermarriages across these racial and religious boundaries, provided that it was between more elite status men or important uh, mercenary officers who came to train the Mughal armies. And therefore, it really depended on the class and caste of the individuals concerned. The pattern was overwhelmingly European men and Indian women, especially in that early period, because very few European women came out to India in that period. So you did get some examples of very high status Indian women who married European men who were also high status, but they tended to be Muslim women. Some cases of high caste women, such as a Rajput woman who was the mother of Sikandar Sahib, the founder of Skinner's Horse, which lives on in the Indian Army as a tank regiment. So there were different levels of class and caste origins, and there were formal marriages, and there was concubinage, and there were informal liaisons. So you had this whole spectrum. Of course, the largest number of Europeans in India over a long period of time would eventually be soldiers. So disproportionately, this group emerged as the children of soldiers. But it also had its early origins in these more elite and formal marriages, which took place with Christian converts or with uh, Muslim women, sometimes under Islamic rites. And when the woman concerned was a Hindu, she would usually convert or the children would be raised as Christian, and she would typically lose caste. So her position within the Hindu caste system would be that she would effectively be ejected from her own family and community. That helps to explain why, as well as the fact that the British would ultimately create a lot of orphanage institutions for many of these children. They were very culturally orientated towards Britain, and they spoke English from a very early stage in this process. So that's how the, a lot how the Indians responded to these, to these relationships, to this community. Um, what about the British? Um, and maybe we'll kind of talk a bit more about, about the class side of things here. Um, I know in your book there's kind of a lot of discussions about, um, about the Anglians' connection to, to Britain, to the metropole, whether or not they could, were able to, should, were allowed to be part of the prestigious imperial institutions at the time, especially things like education. Um, but so, so how did this community relate to 
relate to the British side of things, especially when it comes to things like class. So that is a long and complicated story, of course, but and it, it goes through various phases. But the important turning point, I would say, is clusters around the 1790s. So from 1786 to 1808, there were a series of company prohibitions which barred mixed-race men from serving in the company's armies. Individual men of mixed descent continued to evade this ban, but it meant that there was a large economic displacement for mixed-race men. And the interesting thing is that early in the 19th century, this didn't really affect mixed-race women as much. So it, as late as 1820, you would find that the majority of East India Company officers in a presidency like Bengal were married to women of mixed descent. So they tended to merge back into the British community in that early period. And that helps to explain how you have it becomes invisible, but you have many British families in Britain that have traces of Indian DNA as a result of that because the female line merged back into British society. But what happened was that these economic prohibitions on mixed race men's employment started to force the creation of a separate group apart from the British. They wanted to be included with the British. They understood nationality and their identity in, in the way that most people did at that time, which is that this comes from your father. You're, you are the same nationality as your father. So there was a demand to be accepted as the sons of the British that they should be regarded as British. But increasingly, the boys were not treated that way, whereas the girls continued to be seen as suitable brides early in the 19th century. Then as the 19th century goes along, there's an increase in racial prejudice aligned with racial ideologies, new ideas about color and, and race and, and scientific racism, so-called. So these theories about race and theories about the racially mixed concepts that they might be infertile, you know, ridiculous ideas that were prevalent at the time and considered scientific, those affected their position. And then also later in the 19th century, Eurasians, as they were then called, were the subjects of a lot of negative stereotypes in literature. So definitely, there was a strong class component which persisted all the way through to Indian independence in 1947 in the position of the Anglo-Indian group. But increasingly, they faced color and racial prejudice which intersected with this class understanding of their position. So there are a few names that kind of pop up throughout the book time and time again for obvious reasons we'll get into. Um, and these are some of the leaders of the Anglican community, especially I think in the, in the, in the kind of the, the 20th century. Um, and those are names like Henry Gidney and Frank Anthony, you know, people who tried to organize the Anglican community. And I wonder if you could share a bit more about their stories, what drove them to, I guess, to kind of take on this leadership role and what their objectives were for, for the Anglo-Indians. Well, Sir Henry Gidney, I mean, he was eventually knighted, was an incredibly colorful personality, a very buoyant individual. Um, he was rather rotund for most of his life. He was incredibly well-dressed. He always wore three-piece suits and 
often wore spats and a monocle. So he was regarded allegedly as a mold of fashion in the Indian Legislative Assembly. And he had a very illustrious career even before entering politics as an ophthalmologic surgeon who had been involved in the Indian Medical Service and fought or served in the Boxer Rebellion in China. During the First World War, he was in charge of a, a hospital. And then in the 1920s, he entered into a competition, a political struggle with another Anglo-Indian leader called John Abbott. And John Abbott probably, having been born in Scotland, looked European, whereas Gidney more obviously looked like a mixed-race man of color. So his political ascendancy was a challenge to some of the Anglo-Indians who were particularly aligned with Britain. And Gidney certainly was incredibly loyal to Britain and the crown, but he tried to triangulate a new position for the Anglo-Indian community and to slowly nudge them in the direction of embracing India as their motherland. So he suggested that Britain should be seen as their fatherland and India as their motherland. He was not in any way trying to break the Anglo-Indian connection with Britain. He was just trying to make Anglo-Indians feel more comfortable in the colonial world in which they lived. They had a very strong British-aligned identity, and he wanted them to incorporate their Indian side in a more comfortable, self-confident way, and to basically to accept that they were a community of mixed descent, whereas there were many individuals that I talk about in the book who were ashamed and tried to conceal their mixed-race heritage in order to succeed in marriages or in their careers. It, it does sound like an attempt to, to build this, um, I guess, synthesis of identities. It seems like it would be harder to do as, as the world becomes more nationalist, becomes more, um, I guess, singular in kind of what someone is. So that's the, that's the, the mission which Frank Antony inherits. So Gidney died in 1942. He was incredibly demoralized and depressed as a result of the Crips mission that happened in that year, when having had all of these special measures for this community, all of this reserved employment in the railways and special nomination to the legislatures, Sir Stafford Cripps came out to India and was offering the Indian nationalist leaders a path to independence in return for their cooperation in the Second World War. It wasn't sufficient what was being offered, but had it been accepted, there were no provisions that were put in place for the Anglo-Indian community. So it seemed like suddenly the position would be completely pulled, the rug would be pulled from under their feet. And I think that uh, the shock of the Crips mission actually hastened Gidney's premature death in 1942. So that's when the young lawyer Frank Antony takes over. And he has a more difficult task in some ways of trying to radically reorientate Anglo-Indian identity towards Indian nationalism. So it's a step further than saying that Anglo-Indians have a British fatherland and an Indian motherland. It's a step towards accepting that Anglo-Indians will, will regard themselves as Anglo-Indians by community, but Indian by nationality. And 
some of the Anglo-Indian leaders, particularly in the Punjab, a man called Few, criticized Antony vehemently, saying that uh, we're not Indians. And so the attempt by Antony to create a nested Anglo-Indian identity within a sense of being an Indian national was one step further in the process to adjust Anglo-Indian identity towards embrace of India, looking to the soon to be departure of the British and the, the future of the new India as an independent country. I want to talk about some of the people, I guess, most responsible for kind of building that new India, a lot of the Indian independence activists, um, like Nehru, like Jinnah, like others. Um, and I mean, obviously they do feature in this story, but the times when they emerge, and maybe I'm determined wrong, but to be frank, it doesn't seem like they're thinking, thinking about this problem at all. It's, it's not something that's top of mind for them. But how did, but you, as someone who's actually studied this, how did the independence activists in India, the prominent politicians like Nehru, like Gandhi, like Jinnah, did they see the Anglo-Indian community as a question to be tackled, as a real problem to be resolved, or was it just a weird colonial holdover for them? Yes, I understand what you're driving at. So I think that Gandhi didn't really recognize the Anglo-Indian community as a political force, even though there is one interesting quote from him when he told the Anglo-Burman, future Anglo-Burman leader, Charles Haswell Campagnac, that Anglo-Indians with their double blood and double intelligence um, could be leaders of a future India if they turned towards nationalism. But generally, Gandhi's attitude by the time of the roundtable conferences in the 1930s was that the Congress party represented all of India and that he, in, the, in his representative capacity heading the Congress party in the roundtable conferences in London, could speak for all of India. So first of all, he tried to focus on a grand alliance with India's Muslims because he saw the Hindu-Muslim question as the, the basis on which to build a solid foundation to claim um, Indian independence, Swaraj. But then at the roundtable conference, he faced uh, minority leaders such as Sir Henry Gidney, who was very articulate, but perhaps more importantly, from Gandhi's point of view, uh, the Dalit leader Ambedkar, mm. who spoke on behalf of India's untouchables, which we now know as Dalits. So Gandhi's primary concern was first Hindu-Muslim unity and then how to make sure that dealing with untouchability, he could retain or keep Dalits within the Hindu fold. For him, the Anglo-Indian community was too small to be a very major force. But the interesting thing is when we look to the 1940s, the Indian nationalist leaders were very sympathetic ultimately to the Anglo-Indians once they saw how much work Antony had put into trying to reshape Anglo-Indian identity towards India. Mm. Um, and again, the other side of this equation are the British. Um, and it seems, from my read of, the history, from, of your book, that the British politicians, A, don't quite know what to do with the Anglo-Indian community either. 
um, it's not clear that they that they want the Anglican community to really embrace their British heritage and then go to Britain. Um, but also it seems like uh, they're very happy to use them as a political football as needed, where, you know, they'll come and say, like, oh, it's terrible how this community has been treated, all these broken promises, despite the fact that oftentimes they were partly responsible for breaking them. Um, anyway, long-winded preamble, but, you know, all you say is, like, how did the British imperial officials, British politicians, how did they deal with this question of the Anglo-Indian community, if they dealt with it at all? So there were, of course, a, a wide range of different British political orientations and parties and factions, and their attitudes differed on that basis. For the colonial administration in general, the Anglo-Indians were a useful force to buttress the security of the Raj, serving in the railways, the telegraph departments, in the auxiliary forces that guarded the railways. And then at moments of crisis, the great rebellion of 1857 to 58, known as the mutiny in British sources. And during the two world wars, they were very happy to enlist the loyal Anglo-Indians on behalf of the British Empire and to take advantage of their loyalty towards Britain and the crown. But then, as is shown in my book, after these conflicts, they often then ill-treated them and ejected them once more from the military units which they had established or allowed them to enter into. So there was this seesaw, almost schizophrenic treatment of the community by the British colonial authorities. And then there were genuinely British individuals who sympathized with and worked for the Anglo-Indian community, others who saw the use that Anglo-Indians could be to the empire, and others, including actually socialists who wanted to get rid of the empire, who wanted to bring Indian independence about more quickly, like Sir Stafford Cripps, for whom the Anglo-Indians were simply an inconvenience, a sort of post-colonial hangover. And that could turn into a liability when India became independent, and these people weren't able to integrate because of their prior history and because of their identification with Britain. So again, when it comes to the waves of migration from India to Britain that included my own family and also subsequent waves to Australia, to Canada, to New Zealand, and even a trickle to the United States, the attitude to their emigration was also filtered through this prism of looking at their skin color, their educational qualifications, were they desirable immigrants? And there wasn't a sympathetic appreciation of all that the community of Anglo-Indians had done for Britain and the obligation that Britain owed towards them. I got one more question about maybe about this community in general before we can talk about maybe the, the bigger picture and the importance of the Anglo-Indian story. But I do want to focus on one particular um, proposal, seems like the wrong word, but one particular solution proposed by members of the community, which was... Um, to basically give the Anglo-Indians their own territory. Yes. Um, whether within India or, like, there's even, like, a thought to take the Andaman Islands and give that to the Anglo-Indians. But but why this, why was this a an idea, a proposal that, that kept on popping up in these discussions to just give the Anglo-Indians their own land, their own community, their own polity, I guess, whether within India or otherwise? 
Well, I do think we have to look at the, the big picture of the 20th century, which was a century of the creation of new borderlines, movements of people, displacements of people, the creation of new countries. So you had population exchanges between Turkey and Greece. You had the boundary lines that were created by the partition of India, which resulted in massive migrations of millions of people and ethnic cleansing and killings on an unprecedented scale. You had the creation of new nations, such as the State of Israel and Pakistan, which were founded on religious and ethnic identity lines. So it did seem, if you combine that with the colonial history of transferring colonies from one country to another after the First World War, or creating colonial enclaves in various places, this was a world in which it seemed quite normal that a territory could be found for a people in need of a homeland. And sometimes that was conceptualized as the Anglo-Indians should have a state within India, so that clustered around the McCluskey Gunge colony in modern Jharkhand. That was the most substantially enacted example, but there were other examples like Abbott Mount in the foothills of the Himalayas and Whitefield uh, near to Bangalore in the state of Mysore. But even beyond the idea of a state within India that might be autonomous or might be in a similar position to Pakistan, conceivably, there was also the possibility that a new territory overseas could be created. And the most near at hand example was the Andaman Islands. Now, if the Andaman Islands had turned into Anglo-India, then would that have remained as part of a federal Indian nation? Would it have remained within the British Commonwealth? Would it have become an independent state? Those were all possible scenarios that Anglo-Indians could imagine. And the idea of cutting themselves adrift from the prejudices from both the British and the Indian side and creating their own country was therefore very attractive. And not only did those Anglo-Indians who strongly felt aligned with Britain engage in these kind of fantasies, it was also attractive to socialists who imagined a pan-Eurasianist future with other mixed-race peoples from Hong Kong, Singapore, what was then Malaya, uh, Sri Lanka, Burma. They thought about a nation that they would call Eurasia, and they suggested what had been German New Guinea um, taken over by the British as a site for their new Eurasian nation, which was also discussed as a potentially a socialist, collectivist nation. And therefore, that has parallels with left-wing socialist forms of Zionism. So I'm, I'm going to assume that this is a community that um, has been understudied. Uh, their importance, their relevance history has been understudied. Um, so in your view, I mean, why is it important to understand um, the history of the Anglo-Indian Anglo community, whether it's a conversation about India and its development or the British Empire and how the empire started to decline in the latter half of the 20th century. What's, what's missing by, by not having an understanding of the Anglo-Indian community? So it's definitely true that various Eurasian populations 
and mixed race groups have been rendered invisible, that they have been understudied. Thankfully, since the 1990s, there has been more and more writing on these groups, but relative to what there should be, they have been understudied. And I think that there are many reasons why we should look at Anglo-Indians and other Eurasian groups in Asia. The Anglo-Indian community specifically is really the oldest, largest, and most substantial mixed-race group that had a community identity in the world. Probably it didn't number much more than 200,000 people in 1947 at the moment of Indian independence, but that was still a large number of people relative to the British residents of colonial India. Mm. I don't include the army, but all of the merchants and the civil servants and the administrators. So it was a large enough group that it could buttress the British Raj quite substantially. And I think that it reveals to us the, the boundary line of all of these racial, color, and class issues in a way that we simply can't access in any other form. Mm. So if we really want to understand the history of race in relation to empire, then we have to look at this boundary line, and we have to look at the people who defy easy classification as either white or non-white, as either the rulers or the ruled, the colonizers mm. or the colonized. We have to look at the difficult cases, which are where these different forces intersect. And that's why I think it's really important to look at mixed race communities in general and the Anglo-Indian community specifically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and as you note, it's, it's, there are many communities like this throughout, um, throughout the British Empire, throughout a lot of um, European empires. Uh, we did an interview earlier this year um, that focused on the Macanese community in Hong Kong, which has a lot of similar uh, characteristics. You know, they, they worked in um, they worked in the civil service as civil as officers. Um, they had their own clubs, but they were not seen by the British as, frankly, I guess European enough to be yes. um, to be part of the the colonial structure. And so, my last question is not about the Macanese specifically, but my last question is kind of like in we kind of talked about the Anglo Indian importance in the history of of empire of the British Empire. Um, of India, um, but what about their importance in looking at the idea of these mixed race communities as a whole and um, the history of mixed race mixed set communities? What makes the Anglo Indians important or useful as a vehicle to understand those dynamics, as you kind of hinted at in, in your last answer? Well, one aspect of this is that we do have generally in the West a sense of what race and color means, which is very much rooted in the American experience, which is based on the concept of a vanishing Native American population and a biracial order of whites and blacks or African Americans. And that leads us to this American perspective of race, which is based on the one drop rule, so-called. So the anti-miscegenation laws that existed in the U.S. up to the Supreme Court case Loving versus Virginia in 1967, that frames so much of our understanding of what color and race and racial identity means. 
And I think when people talk about social justice around the world, they're often simply transposing these American concepts onto other settings. But what happens when we actually look at the history of race and of mixed communities in other settings, like Brazil, other parts of Latin America, or in Asia, we find that even between different British colonies, let alone between the French and the Portuguese and Dutch colonies, there are very different attitudes and positions for these groups. So while there is a commonality of experience for Eurasians in Hong Kong, Malaya, Singapore, Burma, India, and Sri Lanka, there are important differences and nuances. The Dutch-descended burger community in Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, they had quite a different status than the Anglo-Indians in India. They had enjoyed more privileges, legally speaking, under Dutch rule. And so when the British inherit that as a colony, and it becomes a British colony, this group begins to speak English, they become anglicized, and they continue to have a network with other Eurasians in Malaya and Singapore. Some Dutch burghers moved to Kuala Lumpur, for example. So there are all these connections between these groups. But even when they moved to other colonies, the burghers regarded themselves as having a higher status than the other Eurasians. And that was rooted in the fact that the British, encountering a slightly different colonial society than their own, continued to treat them differently than Anglo-Indians were treated in India. And you could also say that in Burma, the Burmese attitudes towards mixed people were quite different because in Burma there was Buddhism and Buddhist customary law which gave women more agency than the Hindu caste system, so that a man and a woman who lived together and ate from the same rice bowl were deemed to be in a customary marriage under Buddhist law. And women had the agency to divorce and dissolve those customary marriages and return to their families, and they would be accepted. Therefore, the position of their children within Burmese society, when they had mixed children, was quite different. So the British did behave similarly in their prejudices towards their mixed-race offspring and the mixed-race offspring of other Europeans in their various colonies, but there were significant subtleties of difference in their treatment and in their position in different colonies. And I think when we understand that, we see that the history of race, color, and class is far more complicated than an American-derived one-drop rule perspective would lead us to believe. Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Uther Charlton Stevens, author of Anglo-India and the End of Empire. Uther, I actually have two more questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Well, I've already actually written the prequel chapters to a follow-up to this book. So I don't I don't know exactly when that will be released, but I shall continue to work on this area. And I am very interested in developing these connections and comparisons which we've just discussed about how Anglo-Indians can be interconnected with the history of other Eurasian groups across Asia. So those are areas that I'd like to continue working on. You can find my book directly from Hearst Publishers, 
website in the UK or from Oxford University Press who are publishing the US edition or you can get it on Amazon from most of the Amazon platforms and it's also available on Kindle. In Hong Kong you can buy the book at Bookazine or get it from Kelly and Walsh or Vibe Book and Music Store. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Uh, Asian Books Podcast is all of your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to support us in doing those writing in, around, and about Asia, Stay tuned to hear who's coming up on the show. But before then, Uther, I'll let you have the last word on things. So I'm also on Twitter at UtherCS, U-T-H-E-R-C-S. Also on Facebook at the same tag. And the book also has its own page, facebook.com slash Anglo-Indian history. No hyphen. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming.